Our New Testament scripture passage is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, starting with verse 1. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding. Lord, turn to your people and have mercy on us, as you always do, to those who love your name. Lord, open our eyes that we, we may see wonderful things in your word. Well, I've been enjoying our series through Matthew that uh, Will has been preaching, and I know Chris and, and I uh, have an opportunity to support the ministry from time to time in this way. And so um, this is maybe, my, I've, I've preached actually many times, even in French, but I've always gotten to pick the text. This one, the text was the next text in line. And so, but uh, this morning in the, uh, in Sunday school, uh, Will was talking, he mentioned about um, hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is really helpful to us here. In other words, how do we step back and look at the context in the immediate context in our uh, passage, but then also all of scripture, and to help us understand this text, which is really kind of shocking uh, in many ways. Um, so. Just a few words about, I mean, Matthew, Matthew's gospel is really written for discipleship. If you say, well, I'm a, and I did say this some 40 years ago, I, well, I, I had just come to Christ. I knew uh, not very much, actually, because I wasn't raised in the church. And I thought, well, if I'm a follower of Christ, I ought to know what he said. 
And so Matthew has what Jesus says laid out for you very helpfully, as particularly in chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which I'll make reference to, but every, throughout. So one of the themes, and Will was mentioning to the children, is the kingdom of God. And I'll just summarize it uh, in a way I think is particularly helpful for our passage this morning. That the kingdom of God, which is in Matthew, it's already here and it's yet to come. It's already and yet not yet. And it's the rule and reign of God, the king, in the hearts and minds, the hearts and minds of his people. And, um, and we will... Um, See, that Matthew is also, I think, particularly aware of his Jewish audience. Of all the Gospels, he's constantly showing how every single thing that's happening, everything that Jesus says, is a fulfillment of what is written. And so if you know your Old Testament, you'll see, wow, he's just, everything, he's laying it out so that you will see that everything Jesus is doing was foretold and was uh, to be expected in some sense. And, is, and that is showing God's faithfulness to fulfill his word. And we'll see a couple. One is, was our Old Testament text, and I'll bring in a little bit of uh, one, another, or several. And so, I mean, Matthew does this with the genealogy, with the birth of Christ, showing how everything was a fulfillment, with uh, John the Baptist. And, uh, in fact, in, uh, in chapter 11, we saw Jesus explaining yeah, John the Baptist was a prophet, and yet, in a way, more than a prophet. And then he quotes uh, from Malachi. Um, Malachi chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 1. So, um, and we'll come back to that. So where is Jesus now? He is in this passage. He's come to the temple. He's teaching in the temple. And if you remember, his ministry has grown, and the leaders... The leaders of Israel are opposing him. They can't stop him. They're trying to. One of my favorite passages in John 7, where, you know, they're waiting to arrest Jesus. And uh, suddenly, there he is. He's in the temple teaching. And uh, they send guards to arrest him. And the guards come back empty-handed. And they, they say, well, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. And so, the, uh, John, er, Jesus has been rebuking the leaders for not listening to John the Baptist. And uh, so, in looking at our passage this morning, the first thing that struck me is, wow, this is, so some of the fulfillment of Old Testament uh, Matthew doesn't leave any guess to He says, well, Isaiah said this, or, you know, just he tells you exactly what he's uh, referring to. But here, I see really Malachi uh, 3. And so in the book of Malachi, in fact, the, the name Malachi means my messenger, the messenger of God. He's there speaking to Israel, and this is like uh, 430 years before Christ. So he's speaking to the Israelites, and he's rebuking largely the leaders because they think that it's a real chore to serve God, and they've lost their... They neither love God nor understand his ways. And God is rebuking them through Malachi. 
And of course, the people are saying, God doesn't really love us. Where is the God of justice? Like, you know, why doesn't God show up? And then in Matthew chapter 3, I'm just summarizing the book for you. <laughs> in Matthew, uh, or in Malachi chapter 3, he, he says, See, I will send my messenger. So that's Malachi. See, I will send, but this messenger is referring to someone who is to come, and Jesus identifies it with John the Baptist. Who will prepare the way before me? Then suddenly, the Lord, whom you are seeking, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Right? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness as in days gone by, as in former years. So the interesting thing is he's going to come and there's going to be a kind of discipline coming on the leaders. And some think that the Malachi 3, well, he, later, of course, it does talk about, you know, a prophetic vision sometimes telescopes all of history into a short space. But this passage that I've just uh, read to you is really, um, I don't think it's about the final coming of Christ because it's not about final judgment. It's about a, a chastisement that God, he, God's going to show up in his temple suddenly and he's going to rebuke them and discipline them, the hope being that there would be repentance. In other words, then the Lord will have people who bring uh, offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. So that's, I think, a context for our passage just in anticipation because the setup, and we'll see another one, of course, uh, later in the in the passage. So uh, in the passage that uh, Will preached on last week, really you had kind of a picture of Israel's history up until the time of Christ, up until, I mean, they, in the end of the parable of the vineyard, you know, the, the son is, is killed, and so that's, um, but then th this uh, parable of the wedding feast, it really takes us from there to the end of, to the wedding supper of the son of the king. So let's, uh, I know I always have to read through passages like 15 times before I see what's going on. So um, this thing, there, I just want to read through the, the passage and think about there's some things which are expected. So this story, well, let me just say that there are a couple of things. Whenever you do a parable, you should think about the culture of the time some because some of the imagery some of it's similar, like the idea of weddings is, is not unfamiliar to us. But, in, uh, but the idea of a wedding banquet was actually a, 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 a common motif, apparently, in rabbinical teaching. They would, they would bring it up. And like any teacher, Jesus is taking a story that maybe they'd heard in various forms and using and appropriating it to what he wants to say. And so our job is, in parables, you don't want to overinterpret and he's trying to explain everything, things that aren't even to be explained, but you want to notice the things in the text uh, that, that, that God wants you to, to, to interpret. And I think that here in this text, there are a couple of things that are really kind of scandalous and are, you know, like shocking. 
And I think those are the points where you're supposed to draw our attention naturally to what God wants us to, to look at. So let's, uh, let's listen to the text again. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants saying, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet's ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king went in to look at the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Well, there's some things that are pretty shocking here. The first is um, that the, uh, the king invites people and they don't want to come to his banquet. So I'll organize my comments in sort of three points, since you have to have three points, right? So I'll try. <laughs> you can tell I'm not an experienced. So the, um, first of all, the king is sovereign. But the hearts of the people have gone astray. The second point is the king is generous, patient. But the people can't even see their own best interest. And the third point is the king is king. Okay, but the people have not known his ways. So let's look at the first point. The king is sovereign, but the hearts of the people have gone astray. In this parable, the only one who speaks is the king. He's in command of the situation. He has, a, he has faithful servants, servants who obey him to the death. And then he has an army which is very capable and which obeys his command. And yet, the people, the jarring thing in this, I mean, it really is jarring. So, one way I can always remember when King Charles, when married to Princess Diana, is it was four days after Janet and I got married. <laughs> So 41 and three quarters years ago. Uh, and it was, it was called a fairy tale wedding. It's, it's tragic, a lot of what's happened to the royal house, and I'm not an exper expert on the royal family. So I, but I'll tell you that at the time, 
anybody in the world, all the leaders of the world who could go went. Uh, certainly all the people who were in the, the uh, Commonwealth, the leaders were all there. Uh, there were thousands of people who gathered at St. Peter's and they had this you know, great, and no one would have dreamed of not going if you were invited. I mean, what a, it was an amazing uh, thing. But even actually Janet and I in our wedding, our little wedding, and we were not um, wealthy, <laughs> and uh, no one turned down our wedding invitations. Everyone who can't, you know, could come, come, could come. You know, I mean, unless there was some, uh, and in fact, I don't even remember anyone who couldn't come of the ones we were able to invite. But uh, maybe there was some, but. But it just, so this is jarring. The hearts of the people have, you know, gone astray. They refuse to obey. They refuse to listen. They don't even give a real answer except for they just are stubborn. And then they, then they have the gall to seize his servants and mistreat them and kill them. Now, of course, Jesus was referring to what happened to the prophets. And he's also, and he does in other places, He's predicting that Jerusalem will be destroyed. I think that's coming through. But those are sort of incidental um, points, but they are there. And it's so tragic. And I'd say this is something we have to ask our own hearts. You know, the, here you have these people, and the king himself is inviting them to a sumptuous banquet. He's prepared everything. And they're like, well, I think I'll go to my field, they're worried, or, you know, or to my business. They're just worried about their immediate sources of income. That's their excuse for not going. Not, not to mention that, of course, the king and his army are the whole reason they can have a prosperous economy, you know, and farm in peacefulness. So it's really jarring, and I think that the Lord wants us to take it seriously. This is, this is jarring, and could this be us? Could it be that God is calling us to be part of what he's doing and we're just doing other things? It's something to think about. The second point is the king is generous. He's patient, provident. He has, he's, has all these oxen, fatted cattle. He's prepared everything. You don't have to bring anything. And uh, the wedding banquet is ready. He sends his servants twice. He sends them one time. Now, it was, in those days, it was uh, uh, not unusual because <laughs> they weren't as precise in the time it took to do things as we are in this day. So the idea was that people would know, you're invited to my wedding, and then we'll let you know when it's, everything's ready. <laughs> so you would, they would, he, they, he sent the servants to invite those who had been invited. Sounds strange. But actually, it was, would have been normal that you would, you know, it's coming. <laughs> but um, the precise time, will announce it when everything is absolutely ready. And he sends them, but he sends, and he sends them twice. And then even, even when they mistreat his servants, what gets him, what gets him angry? Is it that they've offended him? No. What gets him angry? I mean, he had a right to be angry about that. But... It's that they've abused his servants. They've killed them. That's what gets him angry. And I think that the double-sided, you know, the two themes of this whole passage are where are our hearts, right? 
the hearts of the people had gone astray. And the second part is, do we know his ways, right? Now they should have known. You kill his servants, you're in trouble, right? Uh, and that's true of our king. In fact, and it's not just about leaders in the church. I mean, the apostle Paul says, you know, stop passing judgment on one another. You know, to his own master, meaning God, your brother and sister, to them he will stand and fall. And in fact, they'll stand because the Lord's able to make them stand, right? So when you mess with God's people, um, it's not good. And so that is what gets an immediate response. These, you know, the murdering of his, of his servants. And yet, even the war that, that has to take place there does not deter the king. He's going to have this party. It's going to be a wonderful party. And he's going to have people there to rejoice over the, the wedding of his son. And so, um, you see the, the perseverance in bringing blessing. And I think this is another thing which, again, to understand the Lord's ways. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, you know, find out what pleases the Lord. When you're serving in the church, I guarantee <laughs> your toes will get stepped on at some point. And what does it take to serve successfully in the church? Perseverance. They just determine that we're going to bring about a blessing and we're not going to let anything stop it. And so I think it takes that kind of, you know, if we let ourselves be put off by trouble, well, I mean, in fact, our, Jesus told us, in this life you will have trouble. So we should be expecting it, and we should be prepared for it emotionally, and then have that same determination which God has toward us, that he's willing to persevere through all kinds of stuff just so he can bless you. So the, uh, there's something going on here in this passage that I think, and there isn't time for me to go into full detail, but the Apostle Paul does explain really what's going on in this passage. Because, you know, it, it, it was in everybody's mind. Here we have the Jewish Messiah who's come, and the leaders of the Jewish people, they reject him, right? This is a, this is a problem. You may be wondering, like, how can this, how does this work? And uh, Paul, I'll just summarize what he says in Romans chapter 9 to 11. Um, first of all, don't forget that the, that the Jewish people are still loved and they're blessed. And that many, like Paul himself, right, will turn. And Paul uses himself also as an example. And Paul says, you know, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But then he says something really shocking. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Wow. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's the key to understanding this passage, believe it or not. Because those garments have to do with righteousness. But I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's, let's just plot along carefully. But anyway, Paul, you know, he said, 
This hardening of the Jews has come so that the Gentiles can come in, the Gentiles will come in, and then the Jews will turn back and join, and then no one is going to be able to boast. Another lesson in God's ways. In the end, nobody's gonna be boasting. No one's gonna say, well, I was part of America. I was better than other countries. Nope. No boasting. There'll be no boasting. And if you think you have an occasion for boasting, be afraid. Because pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So, and you might think, well, who could have understood this? Well, Paul said, you know, nobody, the Jews didn't understand it, and it was shocking for him to say that their zeal was not based on knowledge. You can understand the Jewish culture. But then he says, well, you know what? He, and he quotes from Isaiah 40, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Nobody understood what he was doing. So, and he says, you know, yes, it's true that some of those branches, you know, the, the Jewish people were broken off because of unbelief, and you were grafted in. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid, because if God disciplined the Jews, he'll discipline you too, right? And so, uh, those are lessons we can learn. So, in other words, this whole theme is explained, and sadly, in church history, sometimes people forget this picture, but it's, it's clearly laid out in Scripture, what's going on with uh, Jews and Gentiles. And the whole point is, as Paul explains, the undoing of what happened at Babel. The whole world is going to be unified. It's interesting. You know, I worked at the university, and, and when people know I'm a Christian. And one, one guy came up, and he said, well, Fred, you, you're not going to like the perspective from which some people are coming from, but you know what? You're going to like this. People are going back to the Apostle Paul. Because they know, even though they don't want to accept everything he says, they know that he, his, one of his goals, one of the projects that he had was the destruction of the barrier between male and female and between Jew and Gentile and slave and free. And so people see that and they know that's something, I think in the human heart, we see it and we desire it and that's because it's what's God's will ultimately. And it's what he's doing. So that's part of what's going on here. And so, but finally, the king is king. He rules justly. You know, he, he, he deals with the murderers. You know, he's, uh, he has his army, he rules, and he brings about the party. He makes the party a success. The wedding hall is filled with guests. But then we have this second sort of jarring part of the, of the parable that might just make the whoop, what? Is that, you know, you invite all these people and another, th another bit of cultural background is that if a wealthy person like this has a wedding, they would provide wedding clothes for people. But even if you didn't know that, that it would be the only way to make sense of this parable because the, the fact is, the king doesn't say, you know, why didn't you go to Walmart and get, you know, he, uh, he doesn't invite only wealthy people. He invites whoever he can find, bring him. So, so what's going on? Well, what do these garments represent? 
Now, this actually an immense, is an immense and fascinating word study. What do these garments, these wedding garments, represent? Well, I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, there's, there's stuff, but I, I'll just uh, mention a few. In Revelation 19, there's actually, I'll mention this first because there's a parenthetical comment in the text itself telling, hey, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so there's a, there were fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her, the bride of Christ, which is, of course, the, the church. And then in, in a parenthetical comment, it says, uh, these uh, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So that's part of it. That's what, part of what it stands for. But of course, those are the things which, you know, we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he created in advance for us to do. So they're a gift. And yet they are also simultaneously things which God's people do. In uh, Job, we just were studying in the men's study, Job, and in verse 29, when he's reflecting on how God had been with men, God had blessed him, he said, you know, a garment of praise, or a, excuse me, I put on righteousness as my clothing, right? It was given to him by God, justice, right, as my turban. So, um, it's a gift of God, and yet it was what he's talking about, the kind of life that God gave him. Isaiah has so many references, it's hard to... <laughs> so I will just uh, uh, pick one. In, you may remember uh, when Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth, he chooses uh, Isaiah chapter 61. He said, you know, the spirit of the Lord is on me uh, to preach good news to the poor, right? Well, a little later in that uh, chapter... He's talking about all the blessings, all the good things which God is going to bring. And he talks about a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is what God offers to you, right? You can trade in your spirit of despair. <laughs> in exchange, <laughs> you get a garment of praise. It's a beautiful image. And in that same chapter, this, the clothing is also referred to as being clothed with salvation. So at the same time, this garment is speaking to us of what God has done for us. And what is happening? Yes, it, it's what we're doing, but what, what was it? A garment of praise. In other words, it's the response, right? And so God has given us these garments, but we are told to put them on. And this imagery is used also in the New Testament. Paul talks about putting on Christ. And that's what he means. In other words, live. Here you are. God has, has rescued you from the dominion of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of light. Now be who you are. In other words, just put that garment on and that garment of praise. Right? And are on other occasions, people say, what, do we, what can we do that we could do the works of God? And he said, well, believe on the one whom he sent, which is, in other words, receive the gospel. And then it's a garment of praise. I, I think it's a beautiful uh, image. The, um, 
another couple of things. Well, it, in Romans chapter 13, it does have to do with engaging us. By, because when you put on this garment, another garment comes off, right? The filthy rags come off. And Paul, in Romans 13, it says, you know, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Or in Galatians, he said, all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So really, it's almost, it's a symbol of, of God's closeness to us, as close to us as our own clothing. But I think probably the most powerful gospel image in uh, this text. And so when I preach a text, I try, I say, Lord, help me see what's going on here. So here we have a text. Where's this person who's in the wedding? They're, they make, you know, they're there near the banquet, but there's a review. The king comes in to see the guests. And there's this person not wearing wedding clothes. All right. And we, and it would have been understood by them that they were, the wedding clothes were offered, right? And, um, and the man is speechless when he's like, what are you doing here without wedding clothes on? And, uh, and so I, you know, I was thinking, where have we seen this before? And then I realized, aha, yes, there is a place. It's this beautiful image, probably I think one of the most powerful images and rather than recite the passage, I think just to just let's just think about this picture. The, the setting is about uh, 50 years before Malachi, so this is Zechariah. So, if, just to put it in biblical context, you, we've got the book of Matthew. Before that is Malachi. Before that is Zechariah. Right? Zechariah is about 480 BC. They've come out of uh, the they returned to the to Israel, you know, from being in, in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And then the leaders, the Levites, are sinning. They're taking foreign wives and they're not following the law. And poor Ezra's, you know, going, he's distraught. And so this high priest at the time was named Joshua. And he's the one that is, so in chapter 3 of Zechariah, which was read earlier, you have an image. And so Zechariah has a number of these visions. They're amazing visions. And in Zechariah's prophecy, by the way, as I was reviewing this, I was like, wow, this Zechariah, he's the one who said, your king is going to come to you gentle, riding on a donkey. He's the one who said, the Messiah is going to come, and they're going to reject him. And so he, he had all of these things, which I'm sure were very much on Jesus' mind. And so, here's the picture. Joshua, he has this vision of Joshua covered with, actually, excrement, if you look at the original, but filth, standing before God, and, of course, Satan at the right hand. For, have you, maybe you've had this experience, right? Standing before the Lord, and all I've done is like being covered with excrement, and Satan's there at the right hand, giving commentary, uh, always helpful. And, and what happens? Just think about what this tells us about the ways of the king. The angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself from the text, I mean, he speaks as the Lord himself. And it's really, I think, a theophany, you know, a picture of Jesus before 
in the Old Testament. He said, the Lord rebuked you, right? This man is like a burning stick snatched from the fire. And so there he is, and he removes all the filth and the filthy garments and gives him new garments, right? That's a picture of what God offers us in Christ. And if you say, well, that's a pretty dramatic experience, I would say that's a pretty good image of what it means to come before God in repentance, to stand like Joshua did there. He was speechless, right? He's just standing there covered with filth. He can't do anything. And God rescues him and clothes him in righteousness and actually even gives him uh, things to do. And he said, but you, you're just a, you and your associates are, are pictures of things yet to come. The, um, yeah, there are other things in Zechariah, like the selling of the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver and, and so on. I encourage you to read it. It's really, it's an amazing text. And there's another thing, there are these amazing visions like there's this stone with seven eyes on it and written on it. And the Lord says, and I'm going to take away the sin of the people in a single day. And those eyes, they're significant too. He explains them a little later in the prophecy. They are the eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth. Now, do you know what that's a reference to? The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to show himself strong in those whose hearts are So, think about that. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, through us, saying, I would just love to show myself strong in someone who just wants to be completely mine. So, now unfortunately, so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean then to be there without the wedding clothes? Well, that's what that means, and uh, is that there are going to be people who think they don't need Christ's righteousness. They're going to think they're in the church, but that, you know, I'm pretty much don't really need God's clothing, his garments. And, uh, you know, when I get to a text like this, I say, Lord, help me, give me, and I often go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and of course, Jesus has something helpful to say. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. So, in other words, superficially, there's going to look like something. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Notice the mixed metaphor. That's the same one mixed in this text. but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do men pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. So sadly, the church will be infiltrated. You know, it's just been the reality. And uh, there are counterfeit, you know, I mean, in that text in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, the people will say, oh, Lord, didn't I uh, prophesy in your name? Your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? So even miracles can be counterfeit. 
So one thing about this fruit, one thing about this garment, the righteousness of Christ is not superficial. There will be people with superficial uh, righteousness, and they will be seen through. The king is, uh, again, this person, how could he think that the king wouldn't notice? But it's a fearful thought. But the, the fact is that in Christ we are offered this great salvation. But if we reject it, that is a terrible affront to the king. And it's to say that his righteousness means nothing. That is, a, is not something you want to do. There's certain things you just don't do, right? You don't kill the, mess with the, the king's servants, and you, and you don't treat his righteousness as, as nothing. So I thought, Lord, help me. How can I summarize this? And so Psalm 95 actually summarizes it wonderfully. And I think it provides us our application. The uh, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with worship, with music and song. This is the garment of praise. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down. In worship, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And here's the application, which is what Jesus was calling them to. It wasn't final judgment on the Jews. It was a, a call, a discipline. And it's a call, though, that I think comes out to the church as well. And, in fact, in the book of Hebrews, which you can read uh, later as a homework assignment, <laughs> uh, it's expounded. The next verse in Psalm 95 is, Today, if you hear his voice, if God's speaking to you today about what he said to you in his word, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your forefathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts have gone astray and who have not known my ways. The same two things going on in our passage today. So I declared on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. The irony is, of course, that they, that, that whole incident in Exodus 17 happened at a place called Rephidim, and Rephidim in, in Hebrew means place of rest. God had already brought them to a place of rest, and they were complaining, saying, is God with us or not? God doesn't love us. Do we complain like that? But uh, I will direct you in the homework to read Hebrews because Hebrews gives us our punchline here. The promise of entering his rest still stands. Right? And so God calls us to enter his rest, to be clothed in his righteousness, his uh, garment of praise. 
Jesus knows that he's going to the cross and he knew what he was going to accomplish and he's not pulling any punches here. But I think we have to just humbly sit there and listen to the intensity of what he's saying and respond. If the king is calling us, Lord, help us to respond. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your, your care. Lord, the, the, the smoldering wick, like the high priest Joshua, you will not snuff out. Lord, only you can take all the filth off of us and clothe us with garments of praise and bring us to your glorious wedding. Lord, may it be so. Lord, help your people. In Jesus' name.